0: Well, thank you Ben, for leading us and uh, let me add my welcome. My name is Paul Reese and I serve uh, as the lead pastor here. Let's pray as we come to uh, hear God's word. Eternal God, what a privilege it is that we can come and hear you speaking to us through your word. And we thank you that Your word points us to your glorious son. And we thank you so much that he is the perfect one who fully obeyed all your word, all your commands. He is the one who stands at your right hand, our high priest who intercedes for us, the one who substituted himself in our place that we could be declared righteous, that we could come uh, into your very presence now. We ask that you'd speak to us that we would understand all that you have revealed in your word. Uh, we ask that you'd bring uh, a right conviction of sin and a right confidence and assurance as we trust in Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Well, the Sunday newspapers uh, have had no problems this week again to fill their pages. Uh, I haven't looked at them today, but I'm sure they're full of the same sort of stuff. It's the same stuff, it's just the names change. Uh, There's plenty of evidence, no doubt, of crime, corruption, politics, and commentary. And adding to the bulk of these Sunday newspapers, there are these um, additional supplements, really supplements that will tell us how to live life. Uh, What the fashionable people are wearing, the must-have items in our wardrobes right now. Uh, They'll tell us the must-have items for your homes, uh, what are the ultimate restaurants, what are the best meals, what are the best wines, and how you can lose weight at the same time of consuming all these things because you want to look trim, at the same time how to look toned, how to have good sex, how to have great relationships, how to have the ultimate hair, how to, um, well, look at these homes, we only had a few more million, you could have these homes, ooh, look at these homes. And actually, you need to sort out your finances so you can live the good life in the future if you're not living it right now. I mean, that's what the supplements are full of. It's telling us what is the good life. They're preaching to us the good life. And with the exception, perhaps, of one little column, there will be a remarkable absence of God, the God who created all the stuff of life. All of it created for his glory, remarkably absent from the Sunday papers. And of course, you know what? You'll never know the truth about the good life unless you listen to the God who created all of life. And so please open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. You'll find that on page 77 in the church Bibles. And let's hear again how God addressed a new nation that stood before him at a mountain called Sinai. We refer to them as the Ten Commandments. In the original language of Hebrew, they're described as the Ten Words. These are ten words for living the good life. The good life, according to the ten words, and summarized by Jesus, is all about loving God, which is the first four commandments, and loving others, which are the last six commandments. Words. God had rescued him out of slavery in Egypt And uh, here are the instructions of how to maintain this blessed life of, of freedom And of course the most fundamental point Something that all the newspapers ignore Is that the good life starts with loving God So let, let me begin reading from chapter 20 verse 1 And God spoke all These words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, what's foundational about the good life is that it starts with acknowledging the God who made us has rights. Last last week we considered the first word to Israel, no other gods. God has the right to our undivided allegiance. The first word prohibited worshipping false gods. It was a call to worship the true and living God alone, no other gods. Now the second word is linked to the first word, To make sure we do not worship the true God in the wrong way. No images of God. God has the right to undiminished worship. And I want us to consider five things from uh, these verses today. First one is this. Idolatry is prohibited. Prohibited. Now, there are two ways we can make idols. Physical images are prohibited. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything, the commandment goes. Whether in the heavens above, whether that's sun, moon, stars, or on the earth beneath, whether that's animals, plants, mountains, rivers, human forms, or in the waters beneath, the marine life, Every physical representation of God is prohibited but also this includes mental images being prohibited. The making of images starts with our thoughts and so when the Apostle Paul addressed the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 having observed their objects of worship and their temples and their idols he challenged them about all their idol making in this way. We should not think of the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. We should not think. See, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He says he does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He is the one who actually gives everyone life and everything. We should not think or conceive of God from our own subjective ideas or guesses about God, about what he's like. But of course, this is what people do all the time. We might not have physical idols in our home or workplaces, but people walk about with their own self-made mental images of what God is like. Uh, If you were to do a vox pop on the street and ask people, uh, tell, tell us about God, tell us what he's like you'll get the most amazing range of answers and ideas. I've heard people say things like this. I like to think of God like this, dot, dot, dot. Or, my God would not do that. Uh, I have a friend who knows God is there. He's had some very profound experiences of God. But when I offer to read the Bible with them, they're just not interested. It's, it, it's bizarre. Uh, it's bizarre to treat any other person in this way. How foolish to think that when I come to you with my own imagined views of who you are and what you're like uh, and, uh, and, and assume that you would act and behave according to my imaginary world. I mean, it's just rude to treat people like that, isn't it? And that's how people treat the living God. Uh, But God was clear with his people. The making of images, whether that's physical or our own imaginary thoughts, is prohibited. Now the question is, now why? Why why is this prohibited? And I, I would summarize it in this way. Any images, whether mental or physical, will always be a diminished and distorted view of God. Always be a diminished and distorted view of God. And so, in a few chapters' time, we're going to discover that tragically, it did not take Israel that long to break this exact commandment. In chapter 32, we're going to come to it uh, in, uh, in a few weeks' time. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down uh, from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and uh, the brother of Moses, and they urged him to make for them an image of God. It's incredible within days of hearing this from God. And shockingly, it didn't seem to take Aaron that long to comply. And he came up with an idea, well, give you all your golden earrings. And uh, he sort of uh, melted it down. And, and, and uh, well, he, he says to Moses later, and out popped a calf. But I think he was a bit more involved with it than that. And he, he made this golden calf. And then he proclaims uh, to, to Israel, um, this is your God, Israel. Who brought you out of Egypt? Now, what's wrong with a golden cow? If you've ever gone to an agricultural show, a Highland show, and you've uh, you've stood next to a champion bull, you will be impressed. It is a daunting beast. It's an impressive animal. It catches people's imaginations. In fact, if you go to the New York Stock Exchange, they've put a huge, big bronze. Uh, statue of a rampaging bull outside of it and there's a part of it that's very shiny as people superstitiously believe that if they rub it it's going to bring them prosperity they long for this charging rampaging wealth producing market Aaron uh, seems to conceive of this calf in in Exodus 32 as an image of the Lord not an alternative God but this is this is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt So what's wrong with that? Well, just consider how feeble this is to represent God. Uh, Jen Wilkin uh, summarizes it in this way. The golden calf is small, but God is immense. It's inanimate, but God is spirit. It's location-bound, but God is everywhere present. It is created, but God is uncreated, it is new, but God is eternal. It is impotent, but God is omnipotent. It is destructible, but God is indestructible. It is of minor value, but God is of infinite value. It is blind and deaf and mute, but God sees and hears and speaks. See, this image is not the Lord their God. It is a lie. A distortion that diminishes the glory of the true and living God. See, as soon as we've made an idol, whether it's a physical one or a mental one, we've, we've not only broken the second commandment, but we've broken the first commandment. We have created another God. When God spoke from Sinai, they didn't see God. I mean, they saw the effects of uh, God's glory coming down on the mountain, a mountain shaking, a mountain on fire and smoke billowing up. But they did not see God as it makes clear in in Moses as he proclaims to Israel in Deuteronomy. um, What they saw was nothing but a shaking mountain, but they heard the voice of God. The 16th century Reformation that swept through Europe was was all about returning the proper worship of God to the Christian church by ensuring the primacy of the Word of God, read and proclaimed through preaching and through the sacraments. For the Christian church, you see God through your ears, it's about taking God at His word. Trusting all that he has said. That's when the Reformation swept through Europe. Um, it meant the removal of images and statues. Of ending superstitious um, adoration of consecrated bread. Thinking that this wafer is the, is the body of Christ and venerating it in that way. Um, removing statues of, um, of Mary uh, uh, that, that somehow... You know, has come up with his ideas that Mary was the Queen of Heaven and she's the one we're supposed to pray to. So quickly, we come up with this religious imagery that is just actually idolatry. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. The second commandment is clear. The second thing to notice from this text is that idolatry is progressive. You see in verse 4, it starts by making an image. And then verse 5 goes on to bowing down and worshipping the image. The object uh, is crafted to represent God in some way. And then it so quickly uh, can become the focal point of veneration. And then worship. This is another aspect of idolatry. Not only does it diminish God, but it actually also progressively impoverishes and diminishes the idol maker and the idolater. That's what we read from Isaiah chapter 44 a moment ago. All who make idols are nothing, Isaiah says, and the things they treasure are worthless. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit nothing? You know, that ludicrousness. You know, half the wood is, is um, used to burn... In a fire to to make a meal and to keep yourself warm, and the other half is made into a god and bowing down to it and worshiping it and praying to it and saying, Save me, you are my god. Well, how ridiculous, how ludicrous that a thing made to represent God so quickly becomes the thing you bow down and worship. How very foolish to worship an idol. Now, you know, you can go to many countries where there are many idols to see, very, very physical representations of this. But of course, in our culture, we, we're still full of idols, but we just don't refer to them in that way. I mean, what are the supplements in our paper about? Many people are just living for the ultimate house. They're living to think, well, if I have this relationship, then I... This will complete me. This will be what my life is about. If I have children, if I have the perfect body, if I have the perfect hair, if I look, if I look a certain way, we, we turn all the stuff of creation and the good things, there's good things in those things, but we can turn them into ultimate God things and we can live to worship it. Uh, we think, well, if I just have a big enough pension pot, I will trust, my, my pension pot will save me. My money will save me. My, this will save me. This is what I live for. People have made their reason uh, the thing that they worship. But It always makes me smile when I go past the statue of David Hume outside the Edinburgh Law Courts. The superstitious faith shown by all who rub his toe for good luck. And for examination success, it shows the vacuum left by the enlightenment uh, where these uh, philosophers wanted to uh, cut away the revealed religion and say, no, it's just it's our rationalism that's going to count. That's going to be the center. Our reason's going to be doing it. And in the absence of God, of course, what pours in is all sorts of superstitious nonsense. It is so foolish to live your life centered around stuff things, uh, to turn your life just about some obsessional hobby, to go through life. My life, my passion in life is to collect you know, little objects. How bizarre to be so focused maybe on, the, on your desire for career success or for the acclaim of your peers that you are willing to sacrifice your family and your marriage in order to advance it. How tragic to to make money your idol and, and basically sacrifice your ethics in order to accumulate more of it. It's just like carving an idol and bowing down to it. People can make extraordinary sacrifices to pursue their idols. And of course, these idols enslave us, disappoint us, And will do us no good when the real troubles of life come upon us. Idolatry is progressive. Thirdly, idolatry is provoking. I mean, why is idolatry a serious problem? Well, read on in verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The Lord God is a jealous God. God. What kind of God gets jealous, asks Glenn Scrivener. Answer, a God of love. See, jealousy implies the context of a committed relationship. Jealousy emerges because faithfulness is called for and faithfulness is called for because God loves with a burning zeal. If a husband is simply uninterested when another man tries to make an amorous advance on his wife, then you start to question, really, their marriage. Does he really love her if he can't be bothered to feel jealous at all? I mean, God has just defeated the false gods of Egypt through the ten plagues. You know, each of those um, plagues represent different areas of the life of Egypt over which they believed that there was a God in charge of it, the rivers and the, all the bits and bobs. Well, the plagues prove beyond doubt the superiority of the Lord God. He's greater than all other gods. And having rescued them out of this cruel pagan culture, he brought them to this exclusive covenant relationship with himself, like a marriage. And so we saw last week, to make other gods is spiritual adultery. And when someone discovers that their spouse has been unfaithful to their marriage promises and and committed adultery, the anger, the sadness, the torment, the devastation, the, the word devastation is not enough, that it causes is just a fractional understanding of the intensity of God's jealous love for His people. So as we come into the New Covenant part of our Bibles, we see that a relationship of a husband and a wife is just a pale reflection of the relationship between Jesus and his church, it says in Ephesians 5. To be on the inside of such jealous love is is a wonderful thing. To know that you are so deeply loved and desired is, is a place of great security. But to be on the wrong side of God's love is to find yourself against a jealous and offended God whose presence causes mountains to go on fire and shake. And of course the passion of God's love is really supremely seen as you come to the, to the mountain called Calvary. Outside the ancient walls of Jerusalem. For it was there that Jesus, out of his passionate love, sacrificed himself on a Roman cross. And everything about that scene speaks of God's wrath upon a covenant breaker. The deep darkness in the middle of the day symbolizing God's anger. That Christ is drinking the cup of God's wrath for sin. And Jesus was there not for his own sin. Never did a, even a, a sinful word come out of his mouth. He came because of his zealous, jealous love to save unworthy sinners like us. And to restore us into our relationship with God. But we should be in no doubt that when we make idols, we are worshipping another God in our life. And we are offending a holy God who taught his people, You shall not make for yourself an image of anything. Shouldn't bow down to it, shouldn't worship it. Fourthly, idolatry is contagiously destructive. If you look at verse 5 again, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now I think probably these are the verses that maybe cause us most problems as we read it. And I want to unpack what it means this morning. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and other places, God promises that men and women would be punished for their own sin and not for the sins of their fathers. You can read that in Deuteronomy 24, 16, and and other places as well. And so there's, at one level, there's no doubt that children suffer the consequences of their parents' sin as a a result of cause and effect. Dig into the knife crime that's going on in gangs, and so often the story is of of boys growing up in, in broken homes with absent fathers. But the second part of this commandment is that every generation sets the agenda... For tomorrow's world. We show our children how to live by passing on to them the idols that they see a center in our lives. You know, one of the most significant factors where the boys will go on to uh, go to church as they grow up is they, they look to see whether their fathers go to church. How parents worship, what they worship, has a profound effect on the children. All our behavior, all the good things, all the bad things, all our sin affects our children. A home where there's been violence used to control others will shape how the children behave in their relationships as they grow up. A home where there's alcohol or drug abuse can all too easily be copied and repeated by the next generation who pass it on to their children. We're going to see in a moment this is not automatic but it does happen. A house where dad lives for money at the cost of his family will not only damage the children, but he'll pass on that way of life unthinkingly to his kids. Cat Stevens had a song about that. The Cat in the Cradle. It's a devastating song whenever you listen to it. You see, idolatry is contagiously destructive. Solomon. Solomon. Supposedly the wisest man in Israel loved many foreign women and he married them and he built temples for them to be able to worship in and, and he got caught up in, in, in their false worship of other gods. And of course, generationally, this got passed on down to the kings of Israel with growing darkness and horror, leading some even to sacrifice their own children in the worship of false gods. Something which the Sunday Times magazine was telling me last week is, is still going on in places like Uganda. And Nigeria, where witch doctors and black magic are even sacrificing children for supposed effects. And all this idolatry provokes the just anger of God. God will not fail to punish the generation that follows the same idolatry. But lastly, the good news I want to share with us as we close There is the good news of turning from idolatry. Look how verse 6 goes on. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you get it? Judgment, third and fourth generation, but actually showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. There is a way of breaking generational cycle of sin and condemnation and it is through repentance see when we turn from idolatry and show our love for God by obeying his commandments uh, when we repent in that way we discover that his love far exceeds his just condemnation he shows his love to a thousand generations of those godly people who love him and are eager to follow his words even though King Ahaz, it says in the, in, in the book of Kings, was an apostate, an idolater, his son, King Hezekiah, witnessed spiritual blessing and revival in the nation when he tore down those idols in obedience to God's word. King Josiah enjoyed a true spiritual reformation in Judah, despite his father Amnon and his grandfather Manasseh having been terrible idolaters. God is so keen to bless those who repent of their sin, throw away their idols, and worship him alone. And I think the UK has lived off a heritage of blessings from past generations. Uh, The the, the great revival we saw under Whitfield and Wesley has long benefited us uh, in, in Britain. God has been kind to thousands of generations onwards. But... It's running out. Don't you get the sense of that? We're living in a land that is showing increasing dysfunction. Because people are worshipping other philosophies and ideologies and religions, and the effects of, are evident in crime and poverty and strange thinking and darkness that we see in our society. Do you know the way back? It's repentance. That was the message of the Lord Jesus, wasn't it? That the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. You'll get right with this this God when Jesus Christ is king in your life. You throw away all the false things of worship and worship Christ alone. This is the message of the apostles as as they went about preaching. uh, That Jesus Christ is Lord and all who repent of their sins and put their trust in him will be saved. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas uh, do an amazing miracle. A, a guy who was lame from birth is healed. And, and the, the priests from the local temple come with their, uh, their animals to begin to sacrifice. They think, oh, it's Zeus. Barnabas is Zeus. And, and uh, Paul is Hermes. And they're going to sacrifice them. And, and when it dawns on Paul and Barnabas what they're doing, they rip their clothes. And they say, look, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only humans like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Our New Testament text last Sunday was 3 Thessalonians 9, 1, verse 9 and 10, how the Thessalonian pagans turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son whom he, uh, from, uh, to wait for His Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus. Who rescues us from the coming wrath? It is always the temptation of the people of God to go back to idols. John Calvin says that the human heart is a, is a factory for idols. You see it in the history of Israel, and it's a warning too to new covenant uh, people. At the end of the letter of 1 John, he ends with this command. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. You know, we need to keep fighting the good fight of faith, which involves taking our eyes off the false idols that that are worshipped by all around us in our society and to focus our eyes on the true image of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, he commands the, 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 the Christians in Colossae, put to death, Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. The culture around us pulls us to idolatry. Our sinful desires within us are always trying to uh, put these sins at the center of our lives. And to them he says, now set your minds on things above where Christ is. We're told to behold his glory and and keep putting on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of the creator by looking to Christ. For God alone is worthy of undiminished worship. can invite the band to come up. And as they come, um, I want to put on a prayer. Which uh, is an old prayer by... Bernard of Cliveau. Um, I'm going to pray it now as a response. And maybe you want to echo it uh, by adding your amen at the end. Let's pray. Oh Lord, come quickly and reign on your throne. For now often something rises up within me and tries to take possession of your throne. Pride, covetousness, uncleanness and sloth want to be my kings. And then evil speaking, anger, hatred and the whole train of vices join with me in warring against myself and try to reign over me. I resist them. I cry out against them and say I have no other king than Christ O king of peace come and reign in me for I will have no king but you Amen I understand this is an old song now maybe some of you remember it It's easy to pick up song response